elders, as your shepherds, we begin to recognize, not only in our culture, but in our church, when we begin to talk about God, that a lot of people don't know who that is. Sure, they believe, confess, they have some sort of confession of God, but when you really begin to compare the God of their speaking and the God of the Scripture, they can often look like polar opposites of each other. It has been our prayer, our aim inside of this series um, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit that he would empower us, again our aim, to seek and savior God as the ultimate good of the gospel. A lot of times we fall in love with the gifts of the gospel. We fall in love with the fruit of the gospel. Justification is a great thing, but that is not the ultimate go goal of the gospel. Redemption is a great thing. Not the ultimate goal of the gospel. Not going to hell. Great thing, right? But not the ultimate goal of the gospel. The ultimate goal of the gospel, is, as Peter would tell us, is that God would be brought near to us, or ultimately we would be brought to God um, through the person and work of Jesus. So the ultimate goal is God himself. We want God. And all things are considered as rubbish compared to knowing him. And so our, our prayer is that we would see that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all these things, all of Scripture, his mission is to bring us to God. See, our lives and how you live and how you act after actually reflect or are a di direct reflection of whom you claim to know and believe in. This is extremely important in a society where somehow you can claim to be a Christian, you can claim you can claim to be any religion for that matter and not really be and yet that is the desire of our hearts as Isaiah would tell us in chapter 46 verses 9 through 10 he tells us remember the former things of old for I am God there is no other I am God there is none like me Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. God is God. God is not like you and me. And God is ultimately in control and God declares, and if we have any authority inside of this scripture, then our God does not lie, he does not sin, and one thing is for certain, God will accomplish what he has planned. He reminds us there in that passage inside of Isaiah, and I will accomplish all of my purposes, all right? I don't know about you, sometimes I'm in conversations or in sermons even, um, I'll get done with it and I'll go, man, I wish I would have said that, or I wish I wouldn't have said that, right? Or you get in a conversation also known as an argument inside of your marriage, you do that a lot. Like, I wish I would have said this, or I'm ashamed that I said that, all right? We happens to us all the time, and yet this is not God. God isn't going to get to some point inside of all of eternity and go, man, I really regret that whole creation thing. It's his purpose. He has a plan. He has a will. He will not get to the end of all things and have regrets about things he wished he would have done. It is perfectly playing out before us, as uh, Pastor Todd will be preaching on the holiness of God. Next week, you'll learn even more about that perfection. See, because God is God, and God does what he pleases, 
then we can trust that God is going to accomplish all of these things. We call this the sovereignty of God. A.W. Pink, we've quoted him several times. He's a pastor, theologian, author. Um, He quotes or defines the sovereignty of God as this. The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of earth, heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases. He pleases as he pleases. So God does what he pleases. This is God's sovereignty. This is his rule and reign. Theologian, pastor, preacher Wayne Grudem would also say that God's exercise of power over creation is also called God's sovereignty. So we're talking about God's reign. Think of king on a throne doing that which he will. He is sovereign over all. It is not a democracy. It is God. And God is in control. Now, here's the thing. When speaking about God's sovereignty, many of us are comfortable with the idea of God being sovereign at a distance, i.e. God creating planets. I think that's pretty cool. That God is expanding the universe. That inside of cells, there are millions of working little things that are happening. I mean, that's, that's, it's remarkable to think like God has done that, he, that he's created the ocean, that he's put stars in the heavens, that he creates humanity and, and as this idea where we have this idea that he kind of has set things into motion. We're cool with that. We're cool with him dictating the food cycle and the water cycle, or if you're like me, you're praising Jesus every time you head down Scottsville Road and you get to hit all green lights. I mean, you're like, God is sovereign right? God reigns. God is gracious in this moment, all right? However, is God sovereign over the details of your life? Is he sovereign over the details of our lives? Is he sovereign not only over the created order, But is God sovereign over every detail, every piece of dust that is flying through this room, every way that a a, a leaf begins to tumble and turn, is it being guided by the very sovereign hand in nature of God? But also, is God at sovereign, I mean, to the very thing that you are wearing here today? Some of y'all he messed up on, but you're, you're here, okay? We're glad you're here. All right. I mean, is he? I mean, he tells us that that literally the number of hairs or lack thereof of hairs on your head are numbered by God. That God is even this morning in charge of, in control of a sparrow, a wee bird. That if it falls from the tree in in a land in a jungle that no man has ever even stepped foot on, that God is still in control of that. But he's in control of you. Every detail. Is God ultimately even in control of salvation? Is God God? Is God sovereign over your joys? 
the joy of a newborn, the joy of a, a wedding celebration? Is God sovereign over your pain and your sorrow and your cancer and your hurricanes and your death? Is God in control of that? Is God or does God do what he pleases? Do you worship him? Even when God never answers the big question, the question why, God is often silent in my life in regards to that question. Do you worship a God that won't answer that? And do you see the value in worshiping a God that will not tell you why your mom died, why your kid got hit by a car and died? Why you got cancer and you never smoked and the dude who's smoking five packs a day is walking around looking like a bodybuilder and never gets it. When your pension, that's near and dear to my family's heart right now, when your state pension is collapsing, is God in control of that? When your 401k drops, when whoever is president is president, is God in control? Even when he doesn't answer why, will we worship him? See, I had a student tell me this week in my college classes up at Western, we were talking about God and spirituality and religions and all these sorts of things, and somebody threw out the idea of hurricanes, and this girl quickly spoke up and said, I'm a Christian, and I just want you guys to know, God has nothing to do with hurricanes. It's just a byproduct of living in a fallen world. Then you read the story of Jonah. And who sends the storm? God. But I was nice. I didn't bust her out. I'm just now doing it. Passive-aggressively, I guess. <laughs> I sat there like, and now I'm, I'm busting her, all right? Listen to this, Jacqueline, all right? God does what he pleases, not what pleases us. God does what he pleases, not what pleases us. See, this is really difficult for a Western Americanized concept. See, you and I, we have been enlightened by the Enlightenment, probably more than any other group of people on the planet. We have been enlightened so much into, into what's called secular humanism, kind of that humanity is at the center and at control and at the center of all civilization. And so it's really hard for us as westernized American people to kind of get out of our minds or to understand this concept of sovereignty. But we need to be humbled this morning at the realization that many civilizations in many countries across our great planet right now do not have a problem with sovereignty. My Muslim friends have no problem with saying that Allah is completely sovereign. Even to the point where they have no assurance of salvation, but they trust that whatever decision Allah makes, it's the best decision. They don't have any problem with that. If you go to Niger, Africa, and you start talking about the sovereignty of God and, people being, and God being the only one that is ultimately in control, you have no pushback from those people saying, man, I got a problem. What about my free will? God doesn't sound fair. All these sorts of things that we start tossing back and wanting to fight against. I want you to know that most of the globe is not thinking like you and I, but we love to wave the banner, drape our pulpits with an American flag, and preach on freedom on July the 4th. 
glad to be an American. Being a Christian trumps that. The Word of God trumps our constitution. It, it trumps our understanding of things. It is not about our freedom. It's not uh, about that. It is about God. And yet we begin to argue and wrestle. I would say that in my 16 years of being a pastor now, that nothing seems to anger our sin nature more than to trust and believe that God is sovereign in all things. However, I would encourage you this morning that nothing, you will find no more encouragement or greater joy than seeking and savoring a God who is ultimately sovereign. Um, growing up in church, a non-Christian but a cultural Christian, I knew all the stories. I was a goody-goody, didn't use any bathroom words, as I've told you before. I was a good boy. And yet I did not know the God of the Scripture, though I was in church day in and day out. Now I remember it wasn't until after I became a Christian that I actually heard of this idea or actually began to read the Bible for myself and saw the word sovereignty in there. And I remember the wrestling and the pain over thinking about that. And I just became bitter and bitter and bitter and bitter and more bitter, shaking my fist at God, saying, what is this? What do you mean that you are in control? And yet it was by the grace of God and through the continual pursuit of him through his scripture that I came to understand that this is one of the best news, or the, the to use bad English, the good, gooder, goodest of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. This week, I was praying through this, and I was reading this book that I read um, called The Valley of the Vision. It's Puritan Prayers and Devotions. And inside of this, it said this little tag statement in one of the prayers, help me to honor you by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make Feeling a cause of faith. Help me to honor you by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make feeling a cause for faith. I don't know about you, but I have constantly fought that drift. My feel, it doesn't feel right that God would be in charge of death. It doesn't feel right that God would be in charge of those who are mute, those who are lame. I'm, I, every day, have a visible representation of God's sovereign hand in disability living inside of my house. And yet it doesn't feel right. But I want us to be encouraged and challenged this morning to realize that our feelings do not determine who God is. Our feelings do not uh, determine God's character and nature. God does, and we must fight the drift from being controlled by our feelings and those and, and trying to get them to determine who God is instead of resting in the truth of God and praying that God would catch our feelings up to those truths. Oftentimes we will think and build a faith around our feelings. This week I had students write to me what they believed, and there was little Koran in it, little Wiccan. I have a witch in my class. Um, there was little um, Christian Bible, though most of my students claim to be followers of Jesus. There was little Bible, little Koran, little Wiccan read quoted in any of those letters or any of those papers. It was simply, well, I feel blank. 
I feel blank. I feel blank. I feel blank. What if your feelings are wrong? God is still God. God is in control. I know that was a long introduction here this morning to set up this passage, but I think it is necessary for where we're about to head. And this is, again, this is about to be a warp speed storytelling moment. So children, hold on to your uncrustables. Here we go. In Genesis chapter 37, it says this. We meet of this man inside the book of Genesis. You've got creation. Then all of a sudden you meet this God named Avram, Abram. All right, and um, all of a sudden, Abram, by this time, the world's population, you got to understand, the Jews do not exist, the Israelites do not exist, most of the world is not worshiping God, there appears to probably be some sort of remnant, I'm sure, on the planet, but there is name, this guy named Abram, and Abram is a pagan worshiper, he is worshiping many gods, and all of a sudden, God out of nowhere shows up and tells this man named Abram, you're my guy. You're going to be the father of many, many nations. We are, if you grew up in church, you remember the father Abraham? I'm one of them. Turn around, sit down, and you're just like, all right? But it was a good time then, all right? This is that guy. So God shows up. He could have picked anybody, and yet God in his reigning sovereign plan says, boom, Abram, you're my guy. You're going to be the father of many nations. Look at all the stars. You're going to have more kids and all that. Abram isn't in church saying, God, pick me. I want to be your God. No, he's worshiping other gods. God shows up in sovereign grace, redeems this man named Abram, and sets him up. He ends up having a few sons, one of those being Isaac. Isaac is the story. Again, he's called up to Mount Moriah. He's supposed to take his son up there and sacrifice him, which I would not encourage any of you to do or to blame that on God for why you're about to kill your kid. It's just, it's, it's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive, all right? That's going to get you in a heck of a mess today if you go home and try to do that, all right? So on Mount Moriah, um, Abraham is called by God to give up his God, his idol, and his son is that. God provides, remember, God provides the ram. He's caught in the thorn bush, all this sort of stuff. He sacrifices him. Isaac goes on. Isaac ends up having a bunch of kids. Long story, made really, really short. And one of those kids is named Jacob. So this is where this story picks up today. A lot of times inside of Scripture, we see this, man, all praise, all glory, all, all, all worship be to God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is that Jacob. Now, Jacob's had a crazy life up until now that we just do not have time to go into. But in chapter 37, we meet Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. One particular son is a son named Joseph, and Joseph is 17. And Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and all the other brothers know it. To make things worse, Jacob often sends his sons out to work inside of the flock, inside the field. They'll be gone for days, if not months, miles and miles away, while Jacob gets to be at the house hanging out with pops. To make it even more distinct and weird, Jacob uh, makes a coat or has a coat or robe, a long robe or a robe of many colors, and he gives it to his son. So while they're all in the shepherd's hat, which means if you grew up like I did, you got a towel from Walmart and some sort of robe, bathrobe that your parents put on you and put a ship for took in your, in your hand, and then you look over here and the dude's in Gucci. 
all right? Major separation between these 10 brothers. You got Joseph, then you got a, the rut. Um, his name is Benjamin. We'll get to him in just a little bit. So needless to say, the Bible tells us over and over and over again inside of chapter 37 that Joseph brothers hate Jacob. He's the annoying favorite one. They cannot stand him. And in this, the, it, the Bible tells us here in this passage that this separates him from his brothers who groan to hate Joseph and not, cannot speak peacefully about him. So one night, Joseph has a dream. He can't control these dreams. It comes to him. And when he sees this dream, inside this dream, he, he sees all of his brothers bowing down and worshiping him. Now, Joseph probably should have kept his mouth shut, but he didn't. Woke up the next morning, he's eating some kosher Cheerios, and he looks at his, his brothers, and he's telling them, hey, here's the deal. I had a dream last night. All of you are going to bow down and worship me. Well, this made and infuriated Joseph's brothers even more. They became angry, and a lot of times when they would be sent out, Jacob would send Joseph to go spy on his brothers to let them know if they're working hard or not. Then he would come back and he would tell Jacob what was happening. Well, this happened over and over and over again, and again would just infuriate the brothers. Jacob sends the 10 older brothers out to the field about six or three miles away, they, they kind of guesstimate. And after a few days have passed, Jacob decides to send Joseph to go spy on his brothers and to get, come back and to give him a good report. Well, as they're shepherding, they begin to notice that their younger brother jo Joseph is coming. And so they devise a plan that here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill this annoying brat and we're going to cover his blood or his robe in his blood, and then we're going to take that robe back to Jacob and tell him that he's been killed by wild animals. Well, the oldest brother, Reuben, thinks that this is not cool. But let's throw him in a pit. Let's don't kill our brother because we don't want blood on our hands, but let's throw our brother in a pit, and then what we'll do is, is we'll kill a goat, put it all over the blood, and then go back and tell Jacob that his son has been killed by some wild animals. But we don't want to kill him because that's wrong. Just leave him in a dry hole in a pit to suffer to death. Well, the Bible tells us that they kind of take a break. They're eating some lunch, all right? And they're hanging out, and all of a sudden they see off in the distance some traders coming toward them. And so they decide, hey, let's make this a little bit more lucrative. Instead of just leaving him in the pit to die, um, let's trade our brother, Joseph, um, to these men, get paid. So not only are we losing the brat, but we're also going to go home with some full pocketbooks. And they devise that this is a great plan. So the traders come up. They trade him for like 20 pieces of gold or silver or something. I lose the fact there. And um, in that, Joseph is taken away. He is sold into slavery by his own brothers. All right? Now, I've only thought about that toward my sister a few times. I never went through with it. But these brothers went through with it. Imagine, sold into slavery, folks. They put the blood of the goat on the multicolored robe. They go back. They tell Jacob, your son has been killed by wild animals. Here is his bloody robe. The Bible tells us that, that uh, Jacob rips his clothing. It's a sign inside the Old Testament of just deep mourning and grieving. He's majorly depressed. He is heartbroken that his favorite son has been killed. 
So that is chapter 37. That's a lot, isn't it? We go to chapter 38, and you have this break in the story of one of the brothers. His name is Judah and Tamar. And I don't have, the, I don't have time to go into this. This is like, don't read this story to your kids unless you're ready to do a lot of explaining about Judah and Tamar. But long story short, Judah gets married, she dies, um, and then there's like this relative named Tamar um, who wants to do bad things um, with, with Judah, so she pretends to be a prostitute, um, and he doesn't know it. She gets pregnant, he says, or is in, in, in around her, and says, hey, we need to kill this lady, she's a prostitute. And she goes, and he asks the question, who is the dad? And she was like, no, you are. I mean, this looks like, you know, Maury Povich on, on Tuesday afternoon. And she's like, you are. And he's like, oh, I've really messed up here. And then it goes to chapter 39. <laughs> Strange. It's weird. But that's what happens. All right? So we pick up the story. Joseph is now in Egypt. He is sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is like the chief executioner. This is a warrior. This is a bad man. He is over all of the guard. He knows how to kill people. But it sounds like Potiphar is probably gone quite a bit because his wife, she's getting a little bit lonely. And it, the Bible tells us that Joseph is a handsome young man. And she's in lust with Joseph. She continues to pursue Joseph over and over and over again, and he flees, he runs. He wants nothing to do with this woman. He even begins to say that this is not only a sin against my master who has given me everything, but this is also a sin, and most importantly, against my God. So Joseph is this slave inside of Potiphar's house, and he, God is with Joseph so much that he becomes very successful, that everything he touches, everything he manages, even as a slave, begins to prosper to the point that even Potiphar says, man, God is with this dude. All the while, every time he's looking away, Potiphar's wife is giving him the wink. She's trying to draw him in. She says, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And this brother had some major self-discipline, or maybe a big God. And God is able to work inside of him. And so one day, um, Potiphar is gone, and, and, and Potiphar's wife invites him to come and to lie with her. He refuses once again. This is a sin against my master. This is a sin against God. And so um, she grabs a hold of him. And in doing so, he kind of, you know, if you take off your jacket and leave it, and he starts to run kind of through his whitey tighties, leaves his robe, and there she stands rejected. So to get back at Joseph, what does she do? She cries out. She yells out for the guards to come. They come running in, and then she wrongfully accused Joseph of sexually assaulting her. Surely Joseph is going to die. His boss, his master, his slave owner, like, is a professional killer. But what happens? As soon as the master found out about this, I guess he kind of knew his wife. And he's extremely angry, but he does not kill Joseph. He puts Joseph into the king's prison. Inside the king's prison, this is Genesis chapter 40, inside the king's prison, imagine this is a pit in the ground, all right? This isn't where you get to go lift weights, you know, play some 
some volleyball in the courtyard, watch some TV. All right, this is not that kind of prison. We're talking about chains, rats, eating scraps, stinky sewage, that kind of place. And Joseph, up to this point, he has been sold twice. He has lost his robe twice. And now for no reason, even though he was faithful to his father, even though he has been faithful to his master, where does he find himself? In a pit, in a hole. Yet God was with him him all the while. Inside of the prison, he's there and he begins to have favor with God. God begins to allow now Joseph to manage the prison as a prisoner. One day, the king's baker and the king's cupbearer are thrown into prison because there's this accusation that they are plotting to kill the king, kill the pharaoh. They're freaking out, and on the night, they have a dream. Joseph had dreams. These men have dreams. And inside of these dreams, they're wondering about what it means. And Joseph tells you, well, the interpreter of dreams is God. Tell me your dreams, and God will tell me what those dreams mean. Well, come to find out, uh, Joseph tells the cupbearer that he is innocent, that he has not been plotting to kill the Pharaoh, and that three days he is going to get his position back inside of the holy throne room of the Pharaoh being its cupbearer. But you, Baker, you were plotting to kill him. And in three days, you're going to lose your head. It's going to be eaten by the animals. Sure enough, three ro- days roll around. Cupbearer is given his job. The baker loses his head. As the cupbearer is leaving the prison, Joseph looks at the cupbearer and he says, okay, here's the deal. When you get back to Pharaoh's um, throne, if you can, remember me. Help a bro out. (laughs) But the Bible tells us inside of Isaiah 40 that he forgets him. He forgets him. And life goes on. It's believed that Joseph was probably inside of this hole in the ground for probably three, three and a half years years but he's managing the hand of God is on him even while he is in prison well the Bible goes on to tell us that the Pharaoh now has a dream Joseph has dreams he figured out what those were yet he doesn't know the cupbearer and the baker they have dreams he's able to tell them by God's grace now the Pharaoh's having dreams, and he's having dreams about life and death, like seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine, but he doesn't really know this at the time, and so he's just having these nightmares, like every night having the same thing, and begins to ask people, does anybody know anybody that can tell me about my dreams? And the cupbearer remembers Joseph finally in prison. So they go and get him. The Bible tells us they kind of clean him up. He's been dirty, probably shaggy. And they clean him up before they take him into Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams, and by God's grace again, he is able to dictate what those dreams mean. And he tells the Pharaoh, here's the deal, for seven years, Egypt is going to be prosperous. There's going to be abundance. We're going to have more grain than we could ever do anything with. But after that, here's what's going to take place. We're going to have seven years of famine. People are going to starve. People are going to die. And we've got to prepare. You've got to prepare, Pharaoh, during those seven years. If not, then thousands, if not millions of people are going to die because we have not prepared for it. And you need a good young man who can manage that provision. Pharaoh, a pagan worshiper, notices that God, the God of these people, is with Joseph. 
So what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh tells Joseph, here's the deal. Man, you are going to be the most, second most important man in all of the kingdom. The second most powerful person on the planet is you, Joseph. You get the rule over everything. There will be none, second to none, under me. I am king. I am sovereign. But right underneath that is you. He gives this once slave, this one guy from Canaan, and now he is second in command in all of Egypt. For seven years, they begin to prepare. They have storehouses upon storehouses upon storehouses upon storehouses. They have a lavish amount of grain. Then that seven year ends. And as God predicted through Joseph, mass chaos ensues. Except for in Egypt. People are dying all around Egypt. But those inside of Egypt, they are living prosperous. And so what begins to happen is all these people begin to come to Egypt to buy the grain and they are able to provide. So Egypt in the time of famine is even growing more prosperous because they had prepared the seven years beforehand. Well, this famine goes all the way to Canaan. Jacob being a good leader, a good dad doesn't want his family to starve, and so he's heard rumor. He's heard rumor that inside of Egypt that there is provision. So he sends his ten oldest sons to go to Egypt to trade, to get provision, to bring that back to Canaan so that they can live. So that they can live. Now, What's, be, in, what's interesting as this begins to happen is, is that once they get there, Joseph is who? He's the second in command. He's the second most powerful person in all of the planet. And he's been doing this, and everything that he does just has, again, has, as we would say, it just turns into gold. Once Joseph's brothers get there and they try to buy some of this sort of stuff, then guess what happens? They do not realize that this is Joseph in front of them. They fall down, they bow down before Joseph, and they beg for this provision. They beg to be taken care of. The Bible tells us in chapter 41, verse 51 through 52, For God has made me forget all the hardship of my father's house. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In the midst of my affliction, God has made me fruitful. God is making me forget my hardships. God is at work inside of my life. See, over and over again, as all these things are happening inside of Joseph, one thing that Joseph has not forgotten, and that is who God is. In chapter 45, verse 7 through 8, it says this. When they get there, um, there's this whole kind of season back and forth, and I just don't have time to go into this today. But eventually, over probably several years, Joseph is testing his brothers who still do not recognize him. And finally is convinced that his brothers have changed. That they're honest. And that they love their youngest brother named Benjamin. The Bible tells us that he can stand it no more. 
And so finally, he clears out all of his throne room, and he's looking at his brothers who once sold him into slavery, left him for dead, and he looks at his brothers, and he tells them, brothers, it is I, it is Joseph. And they are astonished at seeing their brother in such a position. And in this discourse, he tells them in chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you, brothers, who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So he tells him, go get my daddy. So the brothers go, they go to Canaan, they bring um, Jacob back. They take him to Egypt. And inside of Egypt, Joseph is so powerful that he looks at his family. He's like, I'm going to give you the most fruitful land in all of Egypt. I am giving you the land of Goshen. You will be fruitful and multiply because, again, in God's plan, he has sent me here through crazy circumstances to save a multitude of people and even to save those who have put me into bondage. Brothers, I'm going to take care of you. Daddy, I'm going to take care of you. Why is this sign of forgiveness here? Why is this sign of of just grace here? Because Joseph knows who God is. Inside of Goshen. See, the people of God up until this point was a small band of brothers. But inside of Goshen, in the land of Egypt, in at least 400 years, it's going to be guesstimated up to 2 million Israelites are living inside of this land. Which leads us to Genesis chapter 50, which Adam read earlier. Jacob is going to eventually die, and the brothers are thinking, man, we've got grace until Jacob dies. But once Jacob dies, Joseph is going to remember what we did to him. And this is what happens, chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we have done to him, did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave his command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions, the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His fathers also came and, um, and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph lived to be about 110 years, uh, years old, if you keep reading on down in verse 22. And as he's dying, he says this to his family. He says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land 
that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So on his deathbed, he's reminding them, hey, you're not going to stay here in Egypt forever. But God is going to send you back to the promised land. He's brought you here for a reason, but God is going to send you back to our forefathers' land. Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me one chapter, the book of Exodus. Inside of the chapter one of the book of Exodus, 400 years has passed. As I've mentioned, there's now two guesstimations of two million people who claim to be Yahweh followers inside of Israel. Joseph is long dead, but his followers, Abraham's sons, have multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied to the point where the Pharaoh is going, hey, there is more of them than there is of us. If we don't do something about this, they're going to take us over. And what does he do? He puts them into bondage. He puts them into slavery. Now, what is mesmerizing about this? What is sovereign about this? It is important for us to understand in God's character, in his ability to control, in his ability, brothers and sisters, not to know the future. It's not about God looking down through history and knowing it as it's playing out. Is that no, God is controlling future. To say that God would learn is heresy. God knows all because he has planned all. God just doesn't know that you were going to be here today, but God has planned this. We see this inside of the story of Joseph. We see that God is in control of what? Of joyous occasions, the love of a father between a son, but that Joseph is, is also under the control and the sovereign will of God by being in slavery, by being falsely accused, by being left for dead. That God is in control of setting him up in front of a bunch of pagans to be the second most powerful person on the planet. That yes, that God is God. And yet, by the time we get to Exodus, where are Joseph's descendants? Back in slavery. And you know who's in charge of that slavery? God is. Isn't it an interesting paradigm when we look at this idea that Joseph tells his brothers, you meant this for evil. And that was not a lie. They meant it for evil. It was their choice. This is what they wanted to happen. It was evil. They were responsible for this choice. They were responsible for this evil. And yet simultaneously, what do we see? That it was about God. That God was in control of this. That this was to complete the will of God. That even the Israelites ending up in slavery was to complete the will of God, even though it was done by the evil wills of man. In our westernized American culture, see, we have a problem, or we will often say it's got to be one or the other. And you must understand in the sovereignty of God, it is not one or the other. It is God. That God is in control. 
See, what enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers? He understood God. He understood God's character. He understood his nature, his plan. He believed that God was sovereign and that he ruled over everything and that was working all things for his good. This means evil. This means joy. This means suffering, all for the glory of God's name. God was not punishing Joseph, but God was using whatever means necessary to get God's people from here to there. He does that individually, and he does that corporately. See, do you have a God that can do whatever God wants to do? That he can give life when he chooses to give, that he can take it when he chooses to take it, yet man is not lacking in any responsibility, but ultimately knowing and realizing that God is in control. These were Joseph's brothers' real choices. They are responsible, yet simultaneously, this is the complete will of God. Why did Joseph say that God has brought him here? You remember? God sent me to preserve for you a remnant. Keep alive for you many survivors. See, if God had not orchestrated for Joseph to go into slavery, then the Israelites would have died. They would have died out. The people of God would have been no more. They would have starved inside of this famine. But God was using something terrible and hopeful. And I don't want you to get this idea that Joseph's like, man, I love being in this pit. That is not what I'm saying here. But he understood that God was even going to use this. And he knew this by this moment that God is sending him so that there would be a remnant. There would be some of those who survive because God is in control. God is going to do what God is going to do. Now, in your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Follow along with this. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Christmas is coming. We often talk about this sort of thing. The genealogy of Jesus. Look at what it says here. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See what he's doing? He's going back. Abraham was the father of Isaac, as I mentioned earlier, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of who? Judah. Now, I don't know if you're like me and you have ego problems. But God has spent most of Genesis talking about Joseph. God put Joseph in as the second most powerful man on the planet. Joseph was faithful. Joseph believed in God. 
Joseph understood who God was. Joseph understood his role when he had gotten to the points in looking at the providence of God that if God would send me into slavery or into death itself, if that means that salvation would come to my family and to its legacy, then so be it. And then we get to the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's Judah. It's not even Reuben. The birthright birthright should come to Reuben. All the blessings and splendor of Jacob's life should come to Reuben. And that brother, I don't even think, had any sons. And who's the joker brother Judah? Who's sleeping with a woman he believes to be a prostitute who ends up being like his sister-in-law or daughter-in-law or something. And in the genealogy of Jesus, if you go up Jesus' family tree, it's not Joseph. I mean, if I'm writing this story, Joseph is the man. But he's not. Who did God save through Joseph's slavery? Judah. God sent me here early to provide and to make sure that a remnant makes it, that there's a survivor that makes it. Why? Because God is in heaven freaking out over how the chess match is being played out? No, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that God is in control of knowing that one day, because they've always planned it before the foundations of the earth, is that this is what was going to happen, and that from the line of Judah, that there would be the seed of Abraham that would eventually come, as Genesis speaks about, that there would be one, one seed, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And I want you to know all of this is taking place to make sure that God's plan of Sending Jesus is going to happen. And he does that through means that you and I would probably not normally choose. And yet God has a master plan for all of us. Your suffering is not by coincidence. Your suffering is not just by chance. Your suffering and your joy are all part of the grand narrative of God that he is in control. Not you and not me. See, ultimately, this story of Joseph is not about Joseph. The story is about God. It is about Jesus and God doing whatever means necessary to achieve his plan. You and I, brothers and sisters, are much just... Small brush strokes in the masterpiece of God. And are you cool with being that? Are you are you cool with being that? Are you cool with just being a pixel? in the grand narrative. Mission Church wouldn't be here if Cash Baker didn't have a disability. 
you wouldn't be here. I'd be in Arizona or somewhere else. The only reason why I'm back in Bowling Green, Kentucky is I had a little boy 13 years ago severely mentally disabled. And I chose to be a dad over being a pastor in Arizona. I chose to lay down my life for my wife and for my two kids. And because of that, God orchestrated 11 years worth a lot of pain and sorrow and asking questions why and not liking pastors and not liking the church to move me 1,800 miles to a desert where they don't know what Captain D's is. To only be there for exactly one year because it got so bad for cash there that I couldn't look at my wife and kids anymore when I am, church is growing. I mean, you want to ask the numbers. It's happening. We're dunking people. People saying the prayer. Baptism's happening. Membership. All those sorts of things. I couldn't do it anymore. Because I was watching my wife and my kids crumble. My identity was soaring while my family was crumbling. Mission Church doesn't exist if Cash doesn't have whatever he has. And it's why God used a terrible thing, an evil, horrible, terrible thing for us to be here. And God is doing the same things in your lives. And hopefully part of heaven will be him unveiling the curtain to showing us all the, I'll use good language, stuff, junk that he was orchestrating behind the scenes like a great composer that we have no idea about, that we're complaining about. And God is orchestrating all of this because one day the Bible tells us the will is going to happen. Jesus is coming back. So may we, Mission Church, be so enthralled, so just drawn to the person and character and nature of God that we are living to live dangerous, just lives of compassion and joy and that we can say, as Job says, man, though you slay me, whatever it takes for the grand narrative to take place, Lord Jesus, help me to trust the pain, the sorrow of sickness, the wrestling in marriage the wrestling in our city, all of these things. Let us come to you. Let us focus on you. May we just be mere putty in your hands, willing. And, and that is so easy for us to say this morning, isn't it? It's so, it can be so tempting for us. Even this morning I was wrestling um, with this whole idea that, man, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is in control. But, man, it is really hard to practice that, to trust that. See, we need to understand this morning that your choices, this is Tim Keller who says this, your choices are real, they matter, but our choices do not determine the future. God does. 
If you believe everything is fixed despite our choices, then you will be passive. This is what a lot of people, well, God's going to do whatever God's going to do, then I'm just going to sit here and do absolutely nothing. I want you to know that is a lie from the straits, from the pits of hell. The devil wants to convince you. Sin, Satan, and death wants to convince us, well, God's just going to do whatever God's going to do. I don't know why God isn't working my life. Well, you've been reading the Bible? Been praying? Been evangelizing in these sorts of things? No. Well, God's like, duh. Okay? Our choices, if we believe that everything is fixed, then our choices will leave us passive. But if you believe your choices actually determine the future, then you should be paralyzed. How scary of a thought that I'm controlling the story of God, that I in some way by a choice can manipulate God's picked sovereign plan i mean we should not move it's kind of like back to the future if you go back and you meet your mama and she likes you which is really weird then our sisters and none of us are actually going to come to life and we're going to whole screw up the flux capacitor and all of the future will be messed up if the case is is that if my choices affect the future then none of us move because we're going to mess it up See, the plan of God, the sovereignty of God is that we are not called to be passive, brothers and sisters. And yet we are not called to be paralyzed. Like A.W. Tozer says this, um, that God in some way is a symbol, has this big ship, and we're on this ship, and we are free to roam about the cabins, to go to the pool, play some shuffleboard, put on their flowery shirt, swim in the pool, go to the bar to have some grape juice, whatever you want to do, they're on the boat, but you're not the captain. The captain is taking it to its destination, and what you're doing up and down on this cabin has no bearing effect on where the captain is leading us. The Bible over and over again tells you, have faith, have faith, have faith, have faith. And you know what you're supposed to do? I'm a, I want to be, I love you. You're supposed to have faith. I'm supposed to have faith. We're implored over and over again, have faith, have faith, have faith, have faith. And you come to Ephesians and it tells you faith is a gift from God. That you can't get it without him. It's both. Over and over and over again. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. 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 And then you come to the Bible where it says, repentance is granted by God. Are you not supposed to repent? No, you're supposed to repent. But just know when you step through that door, as the old preacher would say, on the outside of the door it says, whosoever will. But when you step into that door a little bit deeper, and you look back at the providence of God, It's going to say, chosen before the foundations of the earth. It is going to say, no man comes to me unless the Father drags him, draws him, pulls him to me. So we not be passive as a church. Let's be active. May we not be paralyzed. May we work. Chill out. God's got it. God's got you. I mean, as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, some of you are going through hellish moments in your life. You're wondering why. And I don't know that God's going to answer that for you. But I know that God can answer the who. And it's Him. My sister said one time in MC, I was like, what's up, theologian, sis? We were in a missional community, and Sis looked at the group, and she's like, I have had to come to realize this. It is what it is. Anybody say that? Get a T-shirt, put Kentucky on it. You'll make lots of money, all right? 
It is what it is. But she followed that up by saying, and this had to be from God, if you know my sister. She said, it is what it is, but God is who God is. Man, that has stuck with me now for a couple of years. May Mission Church, may we not forget. In some cases, it is what it is. Does that mean we're passive? No, that's what Christians are about. Did you know the Advent? That means actively waiting. Like something's coming, and Christians, we are marked by people who actively wait. And that's what we're to do. As we wait upon the return of the Lord, we actively wait. Some things are just what they are, but God has never ceased being God. So Mission Church, may we fall in love and trust and know that God's sovereignty is good, that it is right, and that it is for His glory, and it is for your good, even if it doesn't look like it. Let's pray.